Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And when you get there, just put your finger there. Because that's where we're going to be reading from today. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We are at the end of a three-part series on vision for our church, for reality, which can be summarized in this one statement, that we believe from the testimony of scriptures and the Holy Spirit that we are called to enjoy Jesus together and to help others to do the same. We believe that that is the testimony of scripture, and that's just simply how we've learned to articulate it, to enjoy Jesus together and to help others to do the same. And so we've been taking three weeks to examine from the scriptures what that looks like and what that means. You remember a a couple weeks ago, Britt spoke on what it means to enjoy Jesus. Last week we spoke on enjoying Jesus together in relationships. And today we'll be speaking, and this is the, the title of today's sermon, Helping Others to Enjoy Jesus, aka Making Disciples. So if you would, just bow with me and pray. Lord, we come before you this morning in agreement that you are exceedingly enjoyable. In the presence of God, there is fullness of joy, and in his right hand is pleasures forevermore. God, you are our portion forevermore. And Lord, as we gather around the scriptures today, I I just pray over my brothers and sisters, over myself, perhaps over some of us who have had a difficult weekend. Perhaps for some of us who have struggled, who have suffered, maybe for others who have just been thwarted in every angle by sin, we have had a a difficult time following you. But God, I remember your promise that your mercies are new every morning. And it's morning. So I pray that your tremendous, wonderful mercy would wash over us today as we open up your word, that you would give us a fresh start today. By the blood of the Lamb, we would be able to see that you have great desires for us today. To make much of you on the coastlands, to make your name famous, and to thrive in doing so. And I pray that you would give us a passion for that. I pray that you would give us a passion, that we would not just enjoy you and follow you and seek after you by ourselves but that we would have a fire burning inside of us to see others to do the same. This can only happen by your Holy Spirit. So we ask that, Holy Spirit, you would fall upon us today as we open and study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Above anything else in this life, you and I are called to enjoy Jesus Christ. Above any other good thing in this life, and there are many good things, you and I were called first and foremost to enjoy Jesus. This is what we spoke about two weeks ago at the beginning of the series, as it has been testified throughout scriptures, depending on who, who you ask, whether you ask Paul who would say that we are called to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. Or Moses in Deuteronomy who would say, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. 
or whether it's Peter who in 2 Peter would say that even though you do not see Jesus, you know him. Even though you don't see Jesus now, you love him with a joy inexpressible and full of glory. (laughs) Or whether you ask the psalmist who would say, I have nothing in heaven besides you, Lord. Even though my heart and flesh may fail, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The scriptures are replete with this theme that we have been made to worship, to seek after, to love, to enjoy the Messiah. The scriptures are replete with this theme that we are to make Jesus the true source and center of our joy over and above every other source of joy. Now this doesn't mean that we are to enjoy Jesus and nothing else. It doesn't mean we're to be hermits that only read our Bibles and pray every day and do nothing else. We don't eat, we don't drink, we don't talk to other people. We can enjoy a variety of different things. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, James said. He has given us good things to enjoy. It's not that we don't get to enjoy anything else. It's that by enjoying Christ ultimately, by him being our true source of joy, we are able to enjoy everything else all the more. It means that we are not looking for ultimate joy and fulfillment in anything else. They aren't allowed to become idols for us. Anything that challenges our sense of well-being is transcended by knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus. To enjoy Jesus means to act according to truth. It has nothing to do with feeling. It has nothing to do with emotion. It has to do with acting according to what is already true about God. And so something strange actually works itself out in that, in that you don't have to necessarily be happy to enjoy Jesus. Happiness and joy are not necessarily the same things. Happiness is usually contingent upon how well your day has been going. I am happy based on a cup of coffee that I had when I woke up today. But you can lose your happiness. And as some of us have testified at Daisy Love's memorial and the thousands who gathered around her, you can, you can suffer tremendously and still maintain a transcendent joy in God. So it's not feeling. It's a matter of acting according to what is true about Jesus and seeking and following him accordingly. This is what we, we've been talking about. But then we, we moved on from there and we, we started to say, well, you, the Bible doesn't, doesn't leave you alone in that place. We are called to enjoy Jesus, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, But we're not called to do that in isolation from other people. This is the church. We are called to enjoy Jesus in relationship. We get this from the identity of who God is in himself. That he exists in Trinity. That he exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And before even humanity was created, God existed in perfect loving harmony and fellowship by himself. In what the medievals would call the divine dance. And so when Genesis says that men and women were made in the image of God, what do you think that means? When God says in plural form, let us make man in our image, he is implying that there is a sense of that relationship, that divine dance that we get pulled into. So we're called to enjoy Jesus in relationship with others. 
And practically speaking, you know that this is such a good thing because good things are experienced even more deeply when we reflect them onto each other and when we share them with each other. Isn't that the reason we take pictures? No one sits around in their living room just looking at pictures unless you're a photographer, I guess. (laughs) You want to share that stuff. That's why you're always sharing that stuff on Facebook. I see your pictures all day long. We want to wrap other people into our experiences. Things that we love to do, whether it's sports or leisure activities or book readings or novels or just uh, marriage or relational stuff, we want other people to be a part of that because it exacerbates, if that's the right word, it expounds on the joy that we had initially. We are called to enjoy Jesus in the kiln of relationship. What I want to talk about this morning is that it doesn't stop there either. We're not called to be hermits together. We're not called to start holy huddles and to pull ourselves away from the rest of the body or the rest of the world. We are called to teach others, to help others to do the same thing. We are called to enjoy Jesus together and to help others to do the same. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 2, I've chosen this text because everything we're talking about, all of these elements are beautifully, so beautifully encapsulated in what Paul is telling Timothy. 30 years, about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul, perhaps having a sense that he was going to die soon, this was the last letter that he wrote before he was beheaded by Nero, would write a letter to Timothy essentially saying, I'm leaving everything to you. My time is gone. It's time for you to step up. Here's this church I planted in Ephesus. I want you to take over. And here's some things that you need to, you need to get down into your, into your tool belt. Ephesus could be thought of as a trendy metropolitan coastal city like we are familiar with in California. Timothy taking over a small body of believers in that coastal city is being taught by Paul on how to make disciples. And this is what Paul says to him. Listen to this. Read this with me. Verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What you have heard from me, teach to others who will be able to teach to others after them. Is essentially what Paul is saying. What you have heard from me. Now what I want to do from this is to prove to you what Paul's idea of discipleship is. I don't want you to take my word for it. This is a reality vision. This is what we're doing. I want you to see it from the book of Timothy yourself. And so what I want to do with these two verses is just just squeeze it like a lemon. Last week I was making tea. And I kept refilling my tea. And I only had a half a lemon. And so every time I would pour a cup of tea, I would just squeeze this lemon just to get a few extra drops out. That's That's what I want us to do with the word of God. Squeeze it for every drop that it's worth. When Paul says what you have heard from me, Paul isn't saying, he isn't saying to Timothy, hey, you know what? What I what I told you the other day, I want you to tell everyone else, as if it's an inside joke or an inside thing between the two of them. It's not like Paul was like, hey, I got this crazy recipe for shish kebabs. I want you to pass it down to all of my followers so that we can have an awesome brunch on Saturday. He's not speaking about something that's secret. 
He's not speaking about anything new, and he's not speaking about something that we have no idea about. And we know this by what he says. He says in in verse 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Paul often speaks like this when he's referring to a body of truth that's been passed down from generation to generation. He says this in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What I heard, I'm passing on to you, the gospel. What I received, I'm passing on to you. What I heard in the presence of all of these apostles, in the presence of all of these witnesses. In other words, this is a formulaic phrase that Paul is triggering to denote something very important that everybody should know. We know what this is because in chapter 1, Paul can't shut up about the gospel. He says it three times when he's speaking to Timothy. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. This truth that Christians believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of humanity and was risen for their justification and how that changes everything. Paul is saying, I am passing this, that which you heard from me, I am passing on to you so that you can commit to others. He's essentially saying to Timothy, I want you to teach others how to live in the way that we have lived. I want you to teach others the gospel, how Christ, through the resurrection and through the cross, has enabled sinners to enjoy him when they did not deserve to do so. And I want you to think about this context. Timothy and Paul would have been beaten. They would have, been, they would have tasted of imprisonment, of persecution, Paul is about to lose his life. In the midst of this, Paul is saying, you and I know how to enjoy Christ in the midst of all of this. I want you to teach those who will experience persecution like no other how also to enjoy Christ when it gets fiery. This passage retains its luster thousands of years later when you start to examine the place that God has put us in the context that he has put us and the culture which has strong tendencies to be consumeristic. In a day, in an age where our tendencies can be more consumeristic, when we can tend to be more individualistic, when we can tend to be more worried about what we can get out of a certain something than what we can put into it, my question to present to us today is, does that ever, ever bleed into the church life? Does that ever bleed into my life? If I were to be completely honest, I would have to say, yes, of course it does. It sometimes takes the form of shallowness. I can sometimes be shallow in my relationships. Or sometimes in an effort to uh, meet as many people as I can, I can sometimes uh, become spread too thin in my relationships. Some of us don't have that depth. We're spread uh, thin in relationships. We know a lot of people, but we can't point to one relationship that just goes deep. We know a lot of people, but we don't have that one person that we can confide in, that we can go to when we're in shambles. Sometimes it takes a different form. Sometimes uh, we're all about business. We just want results, and sometimes the results that we're seeking come at the expense of people. 
Sometimes it can be with the best intentions in mind, right? I'm doing a great work for God. But in your zeal for the Lord, you steamroll the body of Christ or the people that you love the most. It becomes about the results and not the people. Other times, there might be people who are coming into this thing with a a fear of getting hurt because you've gotten hurt by people. The supposed body of Christ, the, the people who are supposed to model the love of Jesus, you've been hurt by Christians. You've been hurt by people. And so you're okay with the Jesus thing. You're okay with the Christianity thing, but you want nothing to do with the church. You want nothing to do with his people. And so out of a fear of being hurt, you live Christianity in isolation. The New Testament strangely knows nothing about Lone Ranger Christianity, but it offers hope to those who have been hurt by other people. But before we get to that, I want you to consider for a moment the effects of adapting to the spirit of the age. Instead of aligning how we do community and relationship and church together from the scriptures of letting the water, so to speak, creep into the boat, becoming more like the world than we should be, specifically in relationships, the effect of letting the water into the boat. Uh, Recently, I think it was in October 2012, the Pew Research Forum put out this wide body of research essentially describing a new, uh, not really a new trend, but a new finding in which uh, what they called the unaffiliated in the body of Christ or the unaffiliated people in the West. Uh, What they mean by this is those who are atheists, those who are agnostics, and those are specifically nothing in particular. Meaning, it could be a Christian it could be some, someone that loves Jesus, but it's someone who is largely disengaged from fellowship. They are nothing in particular. They're essentially the ones that are saying, I'm into Jesus, I'm just not into his people. Or I'm into spirituality, I'm just not into religion. I'm into, follow, I, I, I'm into Christ and all of that stuff. I just don't want to do anything that he says. <laughs> We're nothing in particular. We we find it attractive and alluring, possibly, but we're, we're not fully attached to it in a specific way. Uh, the research was basically throwing out there that these unaffiliated ones, the nothing in particulars, is steadily increasing. Now, this isn't shocking, or at least it shouldn't be shocking to any of us. This has been the trend for many years, right? Essentially, it's saying that people are, are pulling away from Christianity in one way or another, at least from relationships, at least from the church body. This has been the trend forever. And this is simply what happens when Christianity loses its allure and popularity in society. Let's just face the facts. It's not the 1950s anymore, right? It's not like there's a church on the street corner and that's what you do in your spare time. We're not in the Bible Belt right now. It's not Puritan 1700s. It's not the famous, fun, popular thing to do. It's actually against our culture. And I would argue that that's better for a lot of how we live out our faith. But it has implications for how we do this sort of thing. 
And if Christian, we have to, we have to wrap our heads around this. If Christianity is losing popularity with society, if culture is getting to a place where they're saying, you know what, that is so outdated, I'm not into that, that's not something that I want to be a part of, you're going to find that we are losing those who have not been taught how to enjoy and follow Jesus Christ in all circumstances. Anytime there is a failure to teach others how to follow Jesus, you will, when the going gets tough, see people fall away. Because what have we been doing but raising nominal Christians, people who have just tapped into the club because it looked like a good thing to do. We don't want people to tap into a club. We want people to meet Jesus Christ. And, amen. In meeting Jesus Christ, we have been given a mandate by God to teach other people what that looks like in leisure, in sports, in coffee drinking, in workplaces, in the job area, in family, in marriage, in hardship, in suffering, in fun and games, in everything. So that when culture rears its ugly head and says that is wrong, we can with confidence and joy say Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, in a personal conversation I had with David Kinneman, who was the president of the Barna Group, he said, to the, said this to me recently, that this is largely not what we see in young people. And here's why I bring up young people, is that in discipling others, we have a calling of God to give what we have been given to others. Uh, Kinneman stated this. He said, 59% of young people with a Christian background have dropped out of regular gathering with the church. 60% of young people are dropping back. Pew Research would say this, one important factor behind the growth of religiously unaffiliated is generational replacement, the gradual supplanting of older generations by newer ones. Essentially what this is saying is that people at some place have failed to give the content of the gospel to others. We might have done every other thing right. We might have been singing at the top of our lungs. We might have been on mission doing wonderful things in society. We might have had pizza parties, movie nights, awesome weekends, uh, great gatherings on Easter. But at some point, people, we have failed to, to commit to other people what has been given to us. That Jesus Christ died on the cross and was resurrected from the dead. And what that means for how we live our lives. Some of you would say, well, that's, that's, that doesn't even make sense. I went to this one church the other day, and it was bumping, man. Hundreds of young people are just, just worshiping the Lord, following Christ on mission. That statistic is not true. And I'll give you that much. We can find places all throughout the area where God is on the move. Praise Him for that act of grace. We can find places where young people and old people alike get together and praise the name of God and there is the Holy Spirit falling upon them in power and glory. All these statistics are seeking to say is that that's not normative. Say, well, revival is happening at my local church. I don't know what's wrong with you. Here's the funny thing about revival. Revival. If you look at revival throughout Christian history, going all the way back to the apostles, you see one 
thing in common with all of them. It never stays with one church. It always bleeds into the neighborhood. If the Holy Spirit falls in glory, in genuine revival upon a group of people, it always seems to be very contagious. And it's never harnessed in one denomination. Have you noticed that? The Great Awakening, the Reformation, the Apostles, the list can go on. It's never harnessed in one group of people. It spills over. Because the Holy Spirit seems to know no bounds. And so we can give thanks that the Lord is pouring himself out on a group of people here and there. But we should be asking him to go more so. I think if we were to be true to the word and true to the situation around us, we would have to say that what's normative for our context, even though there's good things happening here and there, what's normative for our context is that the nothing in particulars are on the rise because as Jude would say, the faith that has been handed down to the saints has not been faithfully handed down to them. Like a breath of fresh air, Paul calls us back to the simplicity of investing deeply in the people around us. No gimmicks, no tricks, no magic, just discipleship. Deep investment. He calls Timothy to commit to and teach others. Now, what does he mean by others? What does the Bible mean by others when we're to help others to enjoy Jesus? I think we would have to at least say it means those who are outside of the church, right? Evangelism. Jesus would say in Matthew 28, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But I think we would also have to say that it doesn't just include those outside the church, it includes those inside the church. I just want to read to you what uh, Peter would say in 2 Peter chapter 1. In verse uh, 12 through 15, he says, Therefore, I always remind you about these things, even though you know them and are established in the truth you have. I consider it right as long as I am in this bodily tent to wake you up with a reminder, knowing that I will soon lay aside my tent as our Lord Jesus Christ has also shown me. And I will also make every effort that you may be able to recall these things at any time after my departure. So just based on the Apostle Peter, we would have to say we should be discipling one another. We should be discipling people outside the church. We should be discipling people inside the church. So who should we be discipling? The whole world. Everybody. So what is the mission of our church? Of this local expression of the body of Christ? We would have to say it's to make disciples. It's no shock there, right? Maybe some of you are hearing that and you're like, well, wait a minute, that's the same mission statement as the First Baptist Church down the block. Of course it is. There's nothing unique about this. There's nothing different. This was Jesus' mandate to the body of Christ. Make disciples of me. Help others to do the same thing that you are now doing. But I think if we were to look at what Paul is telling Timothy, there should also be a sense in our minds that we have a calling to a select few people in a special way. Let me read this again. Verse 2, 2 Timothy 2. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men 
who will be able to teach others also. This is what I think Paul is saying, and I'll explain it in a few seconds. I believe that Paul is telling Timothy, disciples are not just followers of Christ. Disciples are disciple makers. Meaning that if you are a Christian, you are a disciple maker. I'm getting this from a few places when he says faithful men. Understand he's speaking, Paul is speaking to Timothy about other dudes, so he uses faithful men. But if we're speaking about discipleship, this is universal for us. So if you're a dude, if you're a woman, if you're a child, this is for you. He's essentially saying, Timothy, I don't want you to shotgun on the street corner to everybody that you can. Of course you're evangelizing to everyone you can, but I want you to devote yourself to a few people that will carry on what I have taught you. He's essentially saying to Timothy, I want you to focus on a select few people with everything that you've got. I want you to invest in them. I want you to find those sponges that will soak up the juice in other words, don't waste your time on the people that are just going just gonna to give you our time and argue with you about stuff. Do tell them about Jesus. Do love them unconditionally. But as far as discipleship goes, I want you to find a few that will soak it up like a sponge. He says this in the next sentence. I want you to find faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So discipleship is not just helping others to enjoy Jesus, it's teaching others how to teach others how to enjoy Jesus. It is creating in the body of Christ a culture of multiplicity, a culture of reproduction. It's not simply the transmission of information, it's a culture of reproduction in which disciples make disciples make disciples. Meaning, all of you who call on the name of the Lord have been mandated by Christ to make disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples. I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but in, in our modern culture, it can be so easy to dwell on if we're going to make, if we're going to, wrestle in terms of success. Like, how am I doing? Am I making disciples? Am I obeying Christ? Sometimes our default is numbers. Success in numbers. Here's the problem with that. This assembly line mentality where I'll, I'm just going to meet with this person once or I'm just going to drop by this person but never talk to him again and I'm, I'm going to talk to a bunch of people and do a bunch of stuff and busy myself but not invest myself deeply with any one person is kind of an assembly line mentality. Just, just get them through the door. That rarely gives us disciples. Numerical measurements often do little more than stimulate our sense of self-worth. Paul's outlook is success in depth. He would say, Timothy, I've been with you for years. Now you go and do the same. Sometimes for us, or at least for me, maybe for you, I sometimes, in the way that I obey Christ, in the way that I endeavor to be on mission, I sometimes do things uh, that can be analogous to a puddle or a pond. It looks like it's covering a wide surface, but it's not very deep. In fact, if you were to dive into it, you would hurt yourself. Paul seems to think more in lines of a, a well 
Or it might, it might not look very big, but it goes very deeply. And it ends up feeding and satiating an entire village. We sometimes build ponds. Paul is digging a well. And you should know that building a well takes a lot of work. I don't know that from experience, but <laughs> I've been told. It takes a lot of self-denying commitment. And in a culture where we like things to be convenient and quick, discipleship can be one of the most foreign things that we've ever heard, right? And Paul, rather, rubs against that philosophy by saying, I want you to find a few people that will grab onto what you say, and I want you to commit to them for a while. Heard this story by a scholar, Michael Horton, in his book, uh, Gospel Com uh, Commission, where he speaks about this American entrepreneur, young American entrepreneur, businessman who is driving, doing this road trip across uh, Geneva to Zurich. And halfway through his trip, he stopped into a uh, a little craft shop and went in where he saw a Swiss cuckoo clock maker, master cuckoo clock maker, making Swiss clocks. And he was so blown away by the artistry and by the craftsmanship that as he was driving away, it dawned on him this brilliant idea. He was like, man, I could make a killing off of this. If I could just go back to that shop and get those plans on a step-by-step, -step, a point-by-point -point explanation on a blueprint, I can make a prototype of this, I can go overseas, sell it to some engineers, make a killing off it, be a billionaire, and everyone in the universe could have their own cuckoo clock. And so he went back to the clockmaker, little shop on the road, and he went in there and he, he pulled open his his little laptop, and he just started to try to write stuff down. Interestingly, within a few seconds, the clockmaker stopped having things to say. And so this young entrepreneur began to kind of prod him with questions. He was like, well, how, how do you do that, that little thing right there? Squiggle. How do you make that? I don't know. Well, what about that part, the little springy, bumpy thing? How do you, how do, you do that? I don't know. Well, how do you, do? I, I just don't know. I've been doing this for years, he replied. I grew up making these clocks with my father. In fact, this is his shop. <laughs> I guess making clocks is in my blood. It comes naturally to me. Michael Horman, uh, Horton commenting on this said, Christian discipleship is a lot like craftsmanship. It can't be produced with formulas, principles, and steps. Disciples don't just come off the assembly line. There's no get spiritual quick scheme. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes effort. It takes patience. It takes skill. And perhaps some of you would add it would take tears and pain. He goes on to say certain shared features identify superbly crafted cuckoo clocks. Yet each piece is handcrafted with its own markings. That's part of the charm. The transformation does not occur through one-size-fits-all formulas, but occurs through belonging to a community that immerses us in the drama, the doctrine, the doxology, and the discipleship of the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
It means belonging to the holy commonwealth that passes along holy habits, many of which cannot be stated explicitly in so many words. It comes from belonging to a family. Disciples are disciple makers by nature. And we see this trajectory with Paul, of all people. From me to you, Timothy, to others. We see him do it in other places. Paul pulls alongside uh, Priscilla and Aquila, and Priscilla and Aquila pull alongside Apollos, and Apollos uh, goes on to just preach the gospel. Some would say he wrote the, the book of Hebrews. I think Paul did, but whatever. We see it with people like the Apostle John. History tells us that John would take, along, uh, take alongside a young man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp, history tells us, would disciple a young man by the name of Irenaeus who would write against the Gnostic heresies of the first century. Some of those writings trickled down and a, a man by the name of Tertullian got a hold of them. Tertullian would be the first person to coin the phrase Trinity, articulating the commonly held belief in Scripture that God is one in three persons. Disciples create disciples. You might say, yeah, but I'm a messed up disciple. <laughs> I'm in no shape to make other disciples. I would just make more messed up people like myself. I feel like I say that every day. How fitting then is it that right before Paul gives us this commission, he tells us, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What he would describe in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. He saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This should cause everyone in this building, yes, to know that we are disciple-making disciples, but to fall on our knees and say, I need the grace of God in my life. You know what the grace of God is? It's God's active power towards us. It's his sheer love for us. It's his indwelling presence with us apart from anything that we've done or deserved. It's God simply saying, I am for you even though you screw everything up. Paul is saying right here, let your strength in the Christian life come from that grace. He's saying feed off of it. Drink deeply of the fact that God had to save you. And what, is, what are the implications for that in your life? I think it's interesting that when Paul says be strong, we can uh, interpret that as being Paul uh, telling you and I, you know what, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Try harder. Do a better job. Stop messing up. Be a better disciple. You really messed up with that person. Don't do that again. He's actually saying be strong in a passive voice. You know what that means? He's saying that the strength that you're supposed to be in is a strength that is acted upon you by another. As God is exercising his grace upon you, let him do it. I love how Paul would say to the church in Philippi, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for God is at work in you to work and to will for his good pleasure. Just submit. That would lead us to say that we also need the Holy Spirit. Paul would say beautifully in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled face 
all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who sanctifies us, who empowers us by impressing the truth of the gospel in our hearts by grace. So by the gospel of grace and the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, it is purely a work of God. Well, then if it's a work of God without any works of our own, then what are we supposed to do about it? I think a better way of rephrasing that question is to say, how can we, by nature of God's grace, position ourselves to submit to that? How can we position our relationships so that the Holy Spirit can have free reign in them? And I would say, based on what I've seen in the New Testament, to center our relationships on what God has said. Center our relationships on what God has said, on the Word of God. That means we should be talking about the Word of God. We should be gossiping the gospel. We should be laughing about what God has done with joy. We should be responding. We should be devoting our time to it. We should be studying it. We should be gathering around it. We should be thinking about it, meditating on it, memorizing it, letting it abide in our hearts and coming together with that in mind. This is seen throughout the early church. It was in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, that it said, those who accepted his message were baptized. That day, about 3,000 people were added to them, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. So if we want to make disciples of ourselves and of others, we should be gathering together based on the word of God. And you will find that wherever, uh, wherever Christians gather based on what God said and what God is saying, that there will be cultivated an atmosphere of discipleship. It will just begin to happen. Have you ever noticed that? You don't have to walk up to someone and awkwardly say, hey, can I disciple you? <laughs> hey. In fact, you don't even have to say disciple at all. It will just happen if you gather together around the word of God. And this can take so many different forms. Obviously, community. And when I say community, I don't just mean like our little pet groups, right? I don't just mean, uh, no, moms getting together with other moms. Although they should do that. And it's beautiful when they do that. That shouldn't be the only thing that we do. We should be gathering together with the broader body. I don't mean uh, different tribes and ethnic groups holding together by themselves, although that's fine and there's fruit from it. We should also be gathering together with all tribes and nations. I don't mean college group, college kids should be getting together only, although we do that and it's awesome. We should also be hanging out with multi-generations. Because just think about that for a second. Young people have a blast when they hang out with each other. And young people go deep when they hang out with each other. But there are only so many things that a 21-year-old can tell a 20-year-old about suffering in life. For that, you need a 50-year-old who has suffered in life. For the 19-year-olds, for the 20-year-olds, for the 21-year-olds, for the 23-year-olds, for the 31-year-olds, some of us need an older generation 
because we're zealous and we're passionate. But we need someone who has learned to enjoy Jesus in life to come alongside us and help us to do the same. But it doesn't stop. It's mutual. You see, the older generation needs the younger generation. You know why? Because sometimes that experience and that wisdom that we so badly need from an older generation can sometimes make you stagnant. Sometimes with old age and with experience and with comfort and with prosperity, we can tend to become used to and stagnant in what we have been doing all of these years. We can be comfortable, we can fall into a routine, and it's nothing uh, there's nothing like a 21-year-old naive Christian who just loves Jesus that comes along and says, maybe God could do something crazier just because he said he could. So young people need the wisdom and experience of an older generation. The older generation need the passion and the zeal and the risk and the naivety of a younger generation. The body of Christ. We need prayer. Are you praying with others, not just by yourself? Baptism. Have you been baptized in front of your peers? Have you made that statement to the body of Christ? I am following Christ forever. Do you, if you've been baptized, frequently look back and remember your baptism as that moment that Christ saved you by the Holy Spirit? Reconciliation. Are you working on, on relationships with the people that you know? Is there anything that you've left just rocky? Is there anything that Satan could get a hold of that is coming between you and another person? Assembling for worship. The author of Hebrews, Apostle Paul, would say, Hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I'm going to skip ahead. Do not stay away from our worship meetings, as some habitually do, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day draw near. Sharing meals together. We see that all throughout the book of Acts. I love how Henry Nguyen put it. He said, I very much like the expression breaking bread together. Because there the breaking and the giving are so clearly one. When we eat together, we are vulnerable to one another. Around the table, we can't wear weapons of any sort. Eating from the same bread and drinking from the same cup. Call us to live in unity and peace. Are you throwing barbecues and parties together? And if you are, that really points to a greater meal, the Lord's Supper, where we experience this unity around the table of Christ made possible by Jesus. Are you learning and teaching others how to experience Jesus in the midst of grief and pain and suffering and hardship? Are you teaching others and yourself how to enjoy Christ in the mundane, in the leisure activities, surfing, playing, reading, goofing off? We're teaching and helping one another to enjoy Jesus in the context of relationships and not just for relationships' sake. So we'd have to say this from what Paul would say to Timothy. Discipleship means to help people to enjoy Jesus together, to enjoy Jesus together and help others to do the same. Luther would put it this way. I'm just a beggar showing other beggars where to find bread. And we as the body of Christ believe that Christ himself is the bread of life. And we've tasted and seen that he is good. And we want other people to taste and see also. 
To make disciples, you got to be one. And if you're not, Christ offers that to you freely by the gospel. That even though you have done everything wrong in this life according to his righteous standard, even though you have not done right in following him, though you have tried, he has come to you. And the just has died for the unjust so that he might bring us to God. If you believe that, put down everything else and follow him this day. He's made it possible. Heavenly Father, thank you, Christ, that you are worth following. We believe that what you said is true, that there will be times where following you is not easy. But we also believe that it will be exceedingly joyful. And I just pray for this church, myself included, Lord, that you would keep us from being swept away by the culture, accommodating things in culture that are not right, things that would cause us to just float along for the ride and yet not consider our calling and our election sure. I pray rather, God, that you would give us a deep impression that to be a Christian means to follow you and to seek after you and to find in you our ultimate joy and source of fulfillment. I pray that in doing so, Lord, you would conquer and destroy all other idols in our lives. We want to be known, Lord, not as a bunch of spectators watching by, being entertained or taking it all in. We want to be known as a group of people on the coastlands that have followed a risen, crucified Savior. So Holy Spirit, make us that. Show us the glory of God in the face of Christ this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.